Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's Brexit speech this week, alignment for the City of London, plus the latest collapse in power-sharing talks in Northern Ireland. I'm delighted to be joined by our political correspondents, Henry Mance and Nora Hughes, plus Ireland correspondent Arthur Beasley. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to receive it on your phone, tablet, computer, TV every Saturday morning. Boris Johnson bounced back into the spotlight this week, delivering the first of a series of speeches from government ministers on the road to Brexit. The Foreign Secretary tried to bring back some of his old pizzazz and charm, but didn't really offer many new details on where he sees the UK heading after it leaves the bloc. This could be the Cabinet's fault. They haven't decided on where we're going either, or it could be Downing Street, restricting what the Foreign Secretary could stay. But the question is, was Boris Reid the best man to reach out to Remainers? Henry Mann you are our man on the ground there. What did you make of the speech? There was a lot of anticipation. I mean, it was like we were going to be addressed by um, some great intellectual and with lots to say. And in fact, I think a lot of people, both sympathetic to Boris and not sympathetic to Boris, went away a little underwhelmed. There wasn't detail. I mean, the fact that in a fairly long speech, he didn't mention Ireland or Northern Ireland once is pretty amazing. When he was asked about immigration, he didn't have a view. He said, we're discussing that. And actually, some of the sort of some of the greatest hits, as it were, from the speech, if, if there were any, were sort of moments from the Vote Leave campaign. So it's almost like his thinking has not progressed very much or as if he's not at the centre of government decision-making on Brexit. Exactly. Watching it reminded me of those Vote Leave stump speeches from the summer of 2016 with the similar rhetoric, the take-back control message, talking about the opportunities, but the lack of any specifics, given that we've had all the debates since then about single market and customs union and tariffs and what Brexit should look like, either makes you think the Foreign Secretary just couldn't bring himself to engage with it, or he wasn't allowed to. Yes, I mean, I think both are probably true. The speech was billed as reaching out to Remainers and there was a kind of narrative thread in there. He was talking about being approached by a woman in his constituency who was very angry and he was saying look, you Remainers have the right in our country to abuse me if you want. But I actually felt there wasn't anything there if you were a Remainer who was angry. The carrots of the Vote Leave campaign weren't there so the unilateral offer to EU citizens obviously can't be there because it's not government policy. So if you're going to reach out to Remainers, which Theresa May's government has not done well, you're not only going to need a different messenger, you're going to need a different message and that's the problematic thing and Boris didn't well, Law Hughes, last time we sat here, we were talking about Boris and his persona and what he's up to. And I think seeing him come out and give this speech was interesting because he was trying to bring back that old persona he had when he was Mayor of London, a backbench MP, which is sort of bonhomie, being very friendly and jovial, making jokes about carrots and claret and certain more risque things about um, Thailand as well. But the slight problem with that is that it feels a bit past it now in a way because these are 
are quite serious issues and the Remainers that he was trying to reach out to are very concerned about things like Ireland, about economic growth, about manufacturing goods. And the fact Boris didn't have anything to say this made you think, well, actually, what was the point of it? Yeah, actually, if you look at a lot of the coverage, it didn't make any of the front pages the next day. And normally a big Boris speech like that would. The Daily Telegraph, you'd think, would have that splashed. They didn't splash it. And actually, the line that a lot of newspapers took was that Boris refused to say that he wouldn't resign if we left with regulatory alignment with the EU. Of course, he was going to say that. But the fact that that was a takeaway top line from what should have been a huge intervention in a big bolstering speech from Boris shows that actually it did lack a lot of content and he didn't have much to say. But he couldn't really say that much. And of course, he's limited in what he can intervene on because there isn't an agreed position. The whole thing felt a bit flat. And I think that's the ultimate problem for Boris, that, you know, he is a maverick, but he's in the cabinet and bound by collective responsibility. Now, what was actually ironic was that back in the autumn when he did his 4,000 word piece for The Telegraph and his Sun article, you know, most people accepted he probably broke collective responsibility by stating policy positions that weren't agreed. This speech was less interesting than that. So it did have that sense, as I was hinting at earlier, that he'd been restrained by Downing Street, by the cabinet about what he could say, because he's in this pretty bad position that he can't say what he really thinks and he can't walk because if he left the cabinet it would probably descend into civil war. And even when he has made interventions recently, we discussed him coming out and pre-briefing a cabinet disagreement that hadn't actually happened yet on the NHS. It didn't play out that well for him really and he was slapped down by Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary and he's not particularly popular I don't think among cabinet colleagues and we talk about this relationship between him and Michael Gove a lot but you know Michael Gove almost seems to be letting him take the hit and put himself out there and he's actually staying behind the scenes a little bit more. Boris is really stuck and again we're back where we were before and we keep talking about his leadership ambitions and was that speech another chance for him to throw his ring in the towel and make rousing calls for unity? which he didn't really quite do because of the lack of substance in his speech. He's still trying to play games, I think, but he's now being really held in because of the chaos he has been causing. I think that's exactly right. And people that I've spoken to are close to Boris Henry do seem to feel he's very frustrated at his position because I think in an ideal world, he would love to walk and he would love to kind of say, you know, this vision of Brexit is not right. It's not what we promised in the Vote Leave campaign. And I'm the man who can deliver that liberal, liberating Brexit for the country. But if he did do that, I think the Tory MPs would pounce on him, particularly a lot of the Brexit supporters within the party, because they see Theresa May as their best vehicle for getting Brexit through. And anything that risks that, i.e. Boris quitting, would be pretty bad. So he's stuck, really, at the moment. You don't want to fall into the trap of 2020 hindsight, but it does look like Boris may have blown his chance. I mean, the opportunity to go for leadership, one of them was there after the referendum. So once Michael Gove pulled out of his campaign, Boris pulled out. He could have kept going. He could have said, I'll take the risk. What about after the election? There was a chance there. After the conference speech, there was a chance where you had the Telegraph article. And it seems that having passed up those opportunities to follow through, he's going to struggle to find another one this year. I think the attitude from Tory MPs is we've got a disastrous leader, but changing her would be even more disastrous. So I think in a way... Boris Johnson's a, a bit like one of those teams in the World Cup who are sort of end up playing for penalties, even though they know that the actual odds of going through on penalties are not particularly favourable. So I see him hanging around until after Brexit and then challenging for the leadership then unsuccessfully. A more brutal assessment I heard in Westminster this week was that Boris Johnson risks becoming the David Miliband of the Conservative Party, the always future man who never actually delivers on his promise. Now, Laura, you mentioned this 
cabinet away day. So Theresa May is going to corral her ministers, take them off to check as her country residence and say, right, you're not leaving this room until you agree an end state. Is that how it's going to play out, do you think? <laughs> I think they will find a way of fudging something and getting through the day and coming out with something that appeases everyone. I don't know exactly what that will look like, but you know, last week we had two days of talks and nothing really clear came out of that. So there's a lot of pressure, I think. If you were a member of the public, you would want to know what is going on. What are these days of talks? And we're still no clearer, no wiser. But the Prime Minister's in Germany today, meeting the Chancellor there. She's also doing a big speech tomorrow in Munich. They're trying to start putting something out there. I think they'll fudge it again on Thursday. I think we will hear something, but I don't think it's going to cast any real light. I think the real question is, coming up to the March council meeting, where they're hoping to get transition agreed, where they need to, because that's the year countdown until really we leave the EU, is does there have to be a sort of grand position of the end state, you know, the Norway, the Canada, the plus, 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 whatever, or will it all just be fudged and with all generality which is obviously the most politically easy thing to do, but doesn't really give much assurance to businesses, to investors and to voters about where we're heading, Henry. I think businesses and indeed governments around Europe want clearer messages soon. We have a story in the FT today about what the UK is going to propose in terms of the banking industry and the financial services. It's going to propose mutual recognition, which would basically allow UK regulators and EU regulators to sort of respect each other's decisions as long as they have the same goal. And then you sort of monitor how things go and whether there's some kind of divergence. And that would be quite a favourable outcome. And it's one that Michel Barnier, the chief EU negotiator, has so far rejected. So it's a big ask. But those kind of concrete proposals, I think, are really the, the minimum that has to be agreed. The Irish border, again, is something where the UK position is really not detailed at this stage, and you'd expect to see a lot more. If there is a solution with tracking, with sort of trusted trader status, which can work without a hard border and outside the customs union, then the Irish government, for one, is going to want to see a lot more detail this year. And the onus is really on the UK, Laura, to come up with these things. Because if you take the island point that Henry just mentioned, the agreement from phase one basically says it's over to you to tell us how this is going to work with your vision of Brexit, of leaving the single market and the customs union. If you don't do that, well, hey, it's falling back to full alignment, which is exactly what Boris said in his speech this week he won't allow to happen. Exactly. And I think actually that the troubles that we've seen in terms of the talks in Northern Ireland this week and the DUP's very clear statement this week that they'd failed and that the deal that Sinn Féin had put forward was unacceptable to them, humiliated Theresa May again. And going back to this Irish issue, which caused her a massive headache back in December, which was incredibly humiliating with the DUP halted the whole negotiation with their demands in a mad 24 hours. This week's shown again that they're incredibly powerful they're ruthless negotiators and that actually the Prime Minister who flew out there to Belfast on Monday to, you know, hurry the talks along had no real influence and wasn't able to sway them and wasn't able to form an agreement or appease the DUP's Westminster MPs. They are in a very strong position and I do not know and I haven't heard a, a solution to this how she's going to pass this through the DUP who are holding her government up and have very strong views and actually I think wouldn't mind if there was some sort of direct rule from London because it puts them in a stronger position. Let's flip to 
the other side for the moment, Henry, and just talk about where Labour's at at the moment in Brexit, because obviously Who? the Labour Party... <laughs> right, yeah, uh, no, they are um, <laughs> occasionally involved. Yeah, Indeed, that they released a part political broadcast this week, which made not one reference to Brexit, and they've got all these policy committees set up, and there's not one on Brexit. So basically, the party's policy is just to have its fingers in its ears and completely ignore what's going on. But at some point, you know, if the government does decide an end state, it will have to agree, is it with it, is it against it, or is it going to have a lighter form and I guess this comes down to the customs union question that I think if Labour backed staying with the customs union it's something they can sell on the doorstep and they hope that public opinion is going to be on their side. Yeah in the Labour Party in Parliament there's a core of pro-EU MPs people will have seen Chukka and Muna out there and others and they are getting optimistic that there is a move amongst the Labour front bench to bracing a more pro-EU position or a softer Brexit and the Labour strategy has worked quite well up to now, which is to remain almost a step ahead of the government's position and perhaps a step behind public opinion. So you wait until the public understands the need for a transition or businesses are calling for a transition and before the government has quite committed to a standstill transition and you take advantage of that difference. So if we think that there is a, a going to be a softening of the government's position, it makes sense for the Labour Party to move first. There is a vote in March, an amendment to the Trade Bill on staying into the Customs Union. That, for pro-EU MPs, is a real opportunity to see whether there are the Labour votes behind it. That is the crucial point because we know that there is a group of Conservative MPs who are very much pro austin in some form of customs union and it would tip the balance in their favour if Labour were to come out and, and actually have a concrete position on this. And I think Henry's right, Labour have quite cleverly avoided the topic for a long time. And I spoke to an advisor to a senior member of the Shadow Cabinet this day who said, Laura, do you do you really think that's the number one concern for voters on the doorsteps? Do you think they go, what's Labour's position on the single market and the customs union? Actually, they're talking about the NHS and other issues like that. Labour have taken the, the position that because they're not the government, they don't have to have concrete policies. But it's really significant if they do back staying in some form of customs union because actually if the government were defeated and there were enough Tory MPs, the Anna Soubries, Stephen Hammonds of this world to tip it in their favour, they could defeat the government and that's going to put the likes of Boris Johnson in a very awkward position. That'll be a very sizing moment. And just finally, quickly, Henry, obviously we had Boris's speech. There's more coming, excitingly, that he's not the only cabinet minister who's going to be speaking about the road to Brexit. We've got David Davis, Liam Fox are also going to be giving these speeches. Do you think we can expect anything more from the other cabinet ministers or will it be the same as Boris just reiterating past positions, grabbing the headlines for a day and trying to distract from the splits within the cabinet and the party? David Davis is the heavy hitter he also has a tendency for saying slightly too categorical things which come back and bite him but he's the person at the center of these negotiations also philip hammond as we mentioned is expected to endorse an idea of mutual recognition prime minister herself, but he's not giving a speech so he's not been allowed but he, he, yeah <laughs> the prime minister herself um her idea is to make an offer to say these are the things we want to remain part of Europol, the European arrest warrant and these kind of uh, things. How that's received, again, is the question. And I think it's incredible that we have so much internal debate just on the UK side getting its position together before we even engage with the other side of negotiations. Not like we've ever made that mistake before. Things were no less hectic in Ireland this week. The power-sharing talks between the DUP and Sinn Féin collapsed in spectacular style just after Theresa May went to Belfast to claim they were on the verge of a breakthrough. The trust between both sides seems to have collapsed with the prospect of some form of direct rule on the horizon. So what happened and who is to blame? Arthur Beasley, can you just begin by talking us through what happened this week? Was there ever actually a deal on the horizon or was this just optimistic talk from the Prime Minister? 
I think there was a sense in Belfast, Sebastian, last Monday that a deal was within grasp. The sense was that roughly about uh, three weeks into the latest round of talks, one week ago, that the atmosphere had kind of changed and there was a sense that the, that the two parties were coming together. Theresa May and Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach, each travelled to Belfast on Monday. They met all the parties, and although the deal was not done, there was a sense that people were moving in the direction of an agreement. But that, of course, is not, not what happened. And no sooner had Theresa May gone back to London and Varadkar back to Dublin, and Arlene Foster came out on Tuesday and essentially said that there could be some weeks in the discussion yet, and that on Wednesday, to the surprise of people in the talks, she came out and said the talks were over. And what has actually gone on here? Because the key sticking issues, many things, but the Irish language bill as well seems to be the key thing here, the sticking point between the two parties. Well, the, the two parties have been at loggerheads now for 13 months. The power-sharing executive collapsed over a public spending scandal. That, however, is not what divides them right now. What divides them essentially are three questions. The question of gay marriage, which the DUP opposes and Sinn Féin wants in Northern Ireland. The question of funding for inquests of people who died during the sectarian conflict. And then the very, very, very difficult and intractable question of the Irish language. Sinn Féin is pressing for an Irish Language Act, a separate standalone piece of legislation which would protect the rights of people who speak that language. However, the DUP have said this is a step too far and is not willing to grant that in any agreement to put the power-sharing executive together. What appears to have been under discussion is a three-act solution in which there would have been one piece of legislation providing support for the Irish Language and Irish Language Act, a separate piece of legislation dealing with Ulster Scots, which is a language spoken by some unionists, and then a third piece of legislation embracing wider cultural issues, which would uphold what was agreed in respect of the Irish language at Ulster Scots. That seems to have been on the table. There doesn't seem to be any dispute over that, but this, at this point, appears to be a step too far for the DUP. And so the question is really what happens now that there's been a lot of talk of direct rule from Westminster, because as you said, it's been a long time these discussions have come and gone. I guess the real thing left for um, Karen Bradley, who's the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, is either to impose some form of direct rule from Westminster or call another set of elections. What do you see happening now? I think what's going to happen at the moment is essentially that there will be an attempt to have some kind of a cooling off period to see whether there is any hope of getting the two parties back together again into the same room. I think there is a reluctance at this point to call new elections because the sense is that those elections will lead to exactly the same results. There was a Northern Ireland election last year, there was a UK general election, and the DUP on the unionist side and Sinn Féin on the nationalist side remain the strongest parties, and there's little prospect of any major diminution in their support in any new round of elections. I think as well as that, that there's a reluctance to go down the road of 
full-blown direct rule from London in which you would have UK ministers running government departments in Belfast. I think some in the DUP would be quite happy to have that, but that would not be to the liking of Sinn Féin and the other nationalist party in Northern Ireland, the SDLP. Dublin has also said that it would be unhappy with full-blown direct rule and that it would seek increased Irish involvement in the affairs of Northern Ireland in that event. So I think what is going to happen is there will have to be some kind of measures from London to release budget funding for Northern Ireland. There is no government in Northern Ireland, therefore there has to be a budget, and I think a budget will probably at some point be imposed from London. But I think there's a reluctance at this point to go down the road of full-blown direct rule because that will only make it all the more difficult to bring the whole thing back together again. And what's the DUP's general attitude? You said they sort of wouldn't mind a period of direct rule. You know, do they seem quite happy just to sit and let this play out or are they as keen as Sinn Féin to try and get a power sharing agreement back together? Well all sides by their public declarations are wedded to the institutions established under the Good Friday Peace Agreement of 1998 whose 20th anniversary falls within two months in this coming April. Uh, However, getting together around the same table is proving very difficult. I think there is a view that there are disparate voices within the DUP. The confidence and supply agreement under which the DUP underpins Theresa May's government in London, which lost its parliamentary majority in in the disastrous election last year, I think that essentially gives the DUP more power in London. However, it's also fair to say that Arlene Foster herself, the leader of the DUP, is a member of the what's known as the Legislative Assembly in Stormont. She's a member of Parliament in Northern Ireland, but she's not a member of Parliament in Westminster in London. So you could say that it's in her interest to get power sharing up and running again because she would be the First Minister of Northern Ireland. For as long as this crisis and stalemate persists, She essentially is out of office and the MPs in Westminster have a greater say in the party because of the very special role that it has in the confidence and supply agreement. Yes, because that, of course, complicates the whole thing. And Sinn Féin, from what I've seen from their public declarations, are frequently pointing out it's much harder to trust the DUP because they're playing a role in Theresa May's government. And then also the other complicating factor is, of course, Brexit and the Irish border question. And Sinn Féin are very unhappy about the prospect of a hard border. And the DUP are very unhappy with the prospect of a border in the Irish see so it's very much a a problematic one it's hard to see how it unravels yes i think it's also fair to say that there is concern in dublin at the idea of full-blown direct rule people of dublin have have made it clear that it's very important that london should be even-handed in any decisions made in coming weeks and months in northern ireland in the light of this reliance that theresa may has on the dup in westminster and there is as you've said the Brexit dimension, this political crisis leaves Northern Ireland without a formal voice in talks, which will have a critical bearing on what exactly happens there for many, many years to come. And then finally, Arthur, what's your sort of gut on when, if talks will get back together again? Do you think it's going to be weeks? Do you think it's going to be months? And if they do, do you think there's enough goodwill to try and get a power sharing agreement going again? 
appeared there was goodwill at the start of this week. It's quite clear that there has been a, a pretty big setback. The sense I have is that people are going to stand back in the hope that tensions will, will dissipate in coming weeks. I don't see any immediate resumption of talks. Very difficult to see that. When is the next signpost? The 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement comes up in April. You'd have to think that there will be an effort to put it all back together again before that. But that's uh, still a good many weeks away. And against a backdrop of increasing tensions between the two parties, you, you'd have to think they're going to leave it for a while. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to Henry, Law and Arth for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.